This episode of New Politics was released on the 28th of October, 2023, and produced on the land of the Wangal and Wajuk people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, truth in political advertising laws will be coming soon, but there's already resistance to it. Tony Abbott getting all the wrong messages from the recent referendum. Daniel Andrews has gone, but now there's a batch of sexist attacks on Jacinta Allen in Victoria. The Israel military is out of control in Gaza, but who's going to speak up for the Palestinians? And we look at the latest opinion polls. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, arrogant know-nothing. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription, but whether it's a subscription or whether you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a t-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. I'll answer the question. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! The federal government has confirmed that it plans to introduce truth in political advertising laws before the next federal election, and it's a process that's well overdue. And in recent surveys, almost 90% of the electorate wants these laws in place. And it is an offence to tell lies in all other forms of advertising, so it makes sense to extend this to political advertising, especially when taking into account the big lies that have managed to influence recent elections, including the franking credits and negative gearing scare campaign in 2019, and more recently in the Voice of Parliament referendum, which must have been the final straw for the government, which seemed resistant to any changes until now. But not everybody is behind this, with the Conservative Advance Australia group creating a campaign to stop these laws from ever happening. And the Liberal Party as recently as just a few months ago saying that they would oppose the laws as well and the government hasn't got a mandate to introduce truth in political advertising legislation. And this resistance, I think, says a lot about these people. It's almost an admission that if they're not allowed to lie during an election campaign, they've almost got no chance of winning. And we have to wait to see what the legislation is before making an overall assessment about it. But anything that increases the quality of political debate in Australia and reduces the misinformation, something that should be encouraged. It should be encouraged and it's a shame it's got to legislation. I think, as we've been saying, I think almost since the first podcast, we need severe and permanent and extensive media reform. We have to take licences off various media providers. They've shown that they're not responsible enough. We have to make sure that the media is held to account as well. But having laws which holds politicians to account is a good thing. The no campaign campaign one on the basis of mistruth. Now, the interesting thing is, is how much of the mistruth came from directly the, the, the official no campaign? Some did. The outrageous claims of how much uh, was spent on Aboriginal affairs. Jacinta Price and Warren Mundine's continual claims that there was a only a minority of Indigenous people who supported The Voice was shown to be very wrong very quickly. Other claims that such as it's going to take your house, every Indigenous person in Australia is going to get $20,000 instantly, that there's an office, didn't come from the campaign. So should they be held responsible for that? That people believed it is a whole other issue. But this is where a crafty campaigner might let the the power of suggestion go through. The working Conservative Party is going to eat your babies is a lie if it comes from the leader of the opposition position, the conservative workers. But if it's not the official campaign saying that, can you hold them up for it? I guess you make it so that everything they say is truth or can be reasonably construed as truth. And that if there's any other noise around, that can be easily dismissed. And that and that the campaigns uh, have a responsibility to stop any misinformation, even if it uh, advantages them, which you'd think would be your standard ethical position anyway. But We've seen that there's not a lot of ethics in politics. 
And I guess we have to look at who's opposing this legislation, which hasn't even been proposed yet, so they're not even sure what they're opposing. But it's the people who gain politically from creating outrage, the imaginary culture wars and spreading as much disinformation as possible. It's the current Liberal Party, One Nation and Paul Hanson. It's groups like Advance Australia. They're the ones who mainly benefit from being able to spread as much misinformation as possible. And if your political viability depends on spreading disinformation and advertising as many lies as you like, well, that's not really a political movement worth supporting. And it's not a case where politicians won't be able to tell any more lies anyway. It would just relate to political advertising. And it might end up being a case where once the legislation is in place, politicians who want to take this sort of opportunity, well, they'll just ramp up their media appearances and blabber on to journalists who are only too happy to report this type of stuff as fact, or they'll work out other ways of bypassing any legislation. And politicians and political parties do have other ways of achieving their agendas if their agenda is based on spreading misinformation and disinformation. And truth in political advertising isn't going to resolve everything, but I do feel that something like this will at least reduce their attempts to do this sort of stuff. Yeah, you'll never stop it completely. And of course... You don't want genuine misunderstandings to be harshly punished. Of course, the law is very strong on perjury and knows generally when someone has perjured as opposed to when someone has not fully understood something or has genuinely misunderstood a a thing. And I guess you would probably try and use the same types of standard for the perjury charges as you would for um, truth in political action. And that would show that they're serious. The big fear, of course, is that they'll bring in watered down lots of caveats, lots of, and that it's only a very narrow definition of what a lie is, which will defeat the whole purpose. I know Zali Stegel has had a bit to do with it, but yet till we see the legislation, we won't know what happened. I know that it will get support of the minor parties and independents, who are the ones who probably suffer the most from this type of thing. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it pans out. And I think this is also where the Prime Minister's cautious approach has hamstrung the government on some key issues. And sure, they did end up getting quite a few things done within the first six months of government, most notably the Anti-Corruption Commission. But truth in political advertising should have been fast-tracked as soon as they won government in May 2022. And they did set up a parliamentary committee to look at this in August 2022, but they only completed their report in June this year. And I realise there's a lot of complex issues that they need to look at and need to address, but almost a year for the committee process. That's just too slow. And now we've got to go through the process of getting the legislation up and running. So who knows how long that's going to take. And we'll never know if having truth in political advertising would have made any difference of the voice to parliament referendum. But it seems obvious that it's something that will be set up before the next election. And there's many things to weigh up. There's freedom of speech issues. There's freedom of political information and political ideas and political thought. But the freedom of speech is one thing, but the freedom to lie is something completely different. And they also have to consider any unintended consequences and other issues as well. What is a lie in political advertising? How can it be assessed? And who's going to assess whether it's a lie or not? And what's the sanction for the lie? And it also, I think, has to be quite powerful legislation because otherwise, what would be the point of it? It's not the type of thing where you want an announcement and some feel-good legislation. It's the type of thing where you it needs to be hard. And even if you have to let the courts sort out the nitty-gritty with people appealing their decisions, I think they've, it, they've really only got the one chance to do it before the next election. Otherwise, the next election is going to be Albanese and Wong and Dreyfus are going to use this to take over the banks to make sure that all mortgages go to the government and then they're going to take houses and give them to Indigenous people as revenge to the no campaign, which of course is all nonsense. As Scott Morrison discovered, you can make imputations about people and get pre-selection because of it. We need to be able to stop that type of thing. So it should be a full reform of how an election campaign should be won and how running for a seat in parliament as well, like not just being elected, but pre-selection. They may as well fold it all in there, which is not to dictate to the parties how they pre-select, but the procedure they use is unique 
to each party, more or less. I think they're all pretty much the same. But if the Nationals like to pre-select in this way and uh, Labor likes to pre-select from this way and the Liberals like to pre-select in that way, that that should be fine. But it should be honestly done and ethically done. So yeah, I would hope, although I don't think it'll happen, that they would bring in some kind of legislation controlling pre-selections and then legislation controlling truth in advertising in political campaigns. And the other factor is that this is not a new debate. It has been ebbing and flowing over the past 20 years or so, but it has picked up momentum over the past three or four years. But we actually did have truth in political advertising laws many years ago, but they were never actually tested. And in 1983, just after they were elected, the Hawke government amended the Commonwealth Electoral Act to make it illegal to publish anything that could deceive or mislead a voter. And that applied to everyone, not just MPs and political parties. And you could be punished with a $1,000 fine or six months jail. And that new legislation at the time, that was actually repealed before the 1984 election on the basis that it was unworkable. But they never actually tried it out. And the Commonwealth would have probably made quite a lot of money if they kept those laws in place. And Probably the jails would have been filled up as well for a little while, but it seems like there was an aversion to these laws back in 1984, but 40 years down the track, it's quite a different environment. In those days, it was television, radio and newspapers. Today, it's all of that, plus the internet and social media. People get their political news and advertising through their mobile phones, so there's a lot more opportunities for the spread of mistruth and misinformation. And And I think it should be interesting to see what kind of legislation is developed. And it will probably get the support of the Australian Greens, David Pocock and one other senator that the government needs to pass legislation. But the other issue is that politics is actually the art of the lie and manipulation of the truth. But it has really become quite extreme in recent years with people like Scott Morrison and now Peter Dutton just telling obvious and outrageous lies. But truth in political advertising laws, they won't necessarily stop this kind of behaviour, but at least it will put a handbrake on some of the other avenues of misinformation. Yeah, I guess the best we can really expect is that the misinformation be slow, probably not stopped, because I think one of the things that the Republic campaign is didn't need to campaign on stuff, you could just spread whispers. And the No campaign was able to somewhat amplify the whispers that went around. Um, And you want to have some kind of mechanism in that will stop that. Tony Abbott has been in the spotlight recently with his calls to start pulling down Indigenous flags all around Australia and end the welcome to country ceremonies. And he said that he's absolutely sick of it all and he doesn't want to see Indigenous flags on an equal footing with the Australian flag. And I think there's a reason why Tony Abbott was the Prime Minister for less than two years before being thrown out by his own party, and I think this is good evidence of that. He's too divisive, he's too combative, he's too ideological, he just never had the ability to unite people, which is what the Prime Minister has to be able to do, and he's no longer in Parliament, so he can say whatever he wants, but he is a former Prime Minister, and this is what is going on inside his head. But the referendum was about the voice of Parliament and constitutional recognition of Indigenous people, but Tony Abbott seems to think that it was a vote to remove First Nations people from the face of the planet, to assimilate them, and to remove all traces of their existence. And this, I think, is leading into dangerous territory. Tony Abbott is happy to lurk about in the fringes of society, and appear on Sky After Dark, but he's also revealing his true self and his true character, and it's not a very good look. Prime Ministers, I think, have to be very careful in making public statements after they've left office. So, you know, there's there's all of that. And often they've left office because a large percentage of the population has decided they're not interested in what they have to say anymore. Now, that's not to say that a prime minister could come through with some words of advice or a comment on something important. And that's true, whether it's Paul Keating or John Howard or Kevin Rudd or Julie Gillard or Malcolm Turnbull or even Scott Morrison, that not all of them say interesting or relevant things is beside the point to this stuff. At least for a long time, Tony Abbott wanted to have a smoking ceremony when he died in the way that Malcolm Fraser and Gough Whitlam had it, which is why he was promising staying in an Indigenous community for two weeks every year. And and he managed to get uh, none of those two weeks in the first year and none in the second year. I've got a feeling that he's not going to be getting that smoking ceremony. 
Uh, no, I, he may have given up on it or he may be talking to the wrong types of people. <laughs> and it's it was just a very strange and bizarre thing to be commenting on. The Indigenous flag is an important symbol and it's even more important now. And yet, Welcome to Country takes 30 seconds. It can only be done on public land. It can't be done on private land. Private ownership in Australia is pretty firmly entrenched. The High Court found with Mabo and Wick that claims could only be made against essentially public land and public land that's not really being utilised for anything else. So Tony Abbott is really saying the quiet bit out loud, as the Americans say, that people just don't want to acknowledge Indigenous culture or Indigenous people at all. And I think over the past fortnight, since the defeat of the referendum, it seems that the extremists have been given a free reign to attack everything to do with First Nations people. And Tony Abbott is an extremist. I don't think there's any other way of putting it. And he's always has been and always will be. And I don't think he's really progressed since his university days back in 1978. And and it's not like this is the end of Saddam Hussein, where after he was deposed, all traces of him were removed. And this was a peaceful referendum on constitutional recognition. And these guys just feel like the defeat of the voice of parliament is like some sort of victory in a war. So they're going to remove all traces of people that they've defeated. So no to the voice of parliament, no to treaty, no to welcome to country, no to flags, no land rights, no land claims, no to absolutely everything. And for me, this is a reminder of the Adam Good saga from 2015, where something else is used to hide the reasons for the racial abuse. Oh, you know, he's a slider. Oh, he's a cheat. He accused the 13-year-old girl of racist abuse. Or, oh, I just don't like the guy. And Adam Goods was one of the greatest players in the AFL. He won two Brownlow medals. He won two premierships. He played 372 games. He was one of the all-time great AFL footballers. But he was obliterated through racial abuse. And no one wanted to admit that at the time. And the AFL finally agreed that it was racial abuse and apologised about five years later. But for me, it's a similar type of thing that's happening with the post effects of the Voice of Parliament referendum. Oh, you know, it's so divisive. Oh, they get too much. Oh, it's not going to do anything. Oh, too much of a change. And all of this is just a convenient mask to hide what people are really thinking. And it's a lot easier to come out and say all of those things because you can't come out and say, oh, I'm not voting for that or supporting that because it's, you know, it's all about black people. It's just a lot easier to complain about all of those things that the referendum was not about. And during the week, there was also a big controversy about the naming of a new train station in Sydney's Pitt Street, and the name is Gadigal Station, and that would be like naming a train station Nam in Melbourne, Borloo in Perth, or Mianjin in Brisbane, and it's really not a big deal, but there were a lot of criticisms about that from the usual suspects, but a lot of the commentary was, well, didn't we just have a vote to get rid of this type of virtue signalling stuff, and... Now we've got a train station named Gadigal and we've copped a bit of criticism as well. And at the top of each episode of New Politics, we acknowledge the Wajuk people of Perth, Borloo and the Wongal people of Western Sydney. And some people have been suggesting, oh, well, we've got to remove that as well. And why? Why would we want to do that? You know, we want to keep it there. And then you think, well, where is this all going to end? Are we going to rename Bondi Beach or Woolloomooloo, Cronulla or Parramatta? Are we going to go back to Ayers Rock and start climbing that as well? And the referendum was not about any of these things, but it looks like extremists such as Tony Abbott are going to interpret this in the most extreme way possible. Certainly, the no vote has emboldened a, a certain type of thinking. And I think it's not healthy for anyone. It's not healthy for those who are doing it. When you think of all the Indigenous names of places, Dubbo is not short for Dubbington, for example. Wagga Wagga is not short for Wagathonley on Wagathon, you know. I know that the New South Wales Department of Education tries to put in Indigenous names for the new schools and local Indigenous names for the new schools rather than naming it after the white explorers. There's one certain explorer and I, who has already four schools in an area named after him and a freeway and a river and the new school wanted to name the new school after him and the department said he's been on it enough. 
<laughs> you know, and suggested a couple of Indigenous names. As the Jindy Warabak art movement uh, in the 1930s and 40s found, Aboriginal names are actually very beautiful and work really nicely and aren't that hard to pronounce because we've, we've anglicised them so that we're not quite getting the name. But, yeah, to go to Gadigal Station rather than have another Pitt Street Station, which is a bit meaningless. What end of Pitt Street? Is it near George Street Station or is it near Macquarie Street Station? Or you know, having Gadigal, uh, once you know where it is, you're like, oh, yeah, Gadigal. You know, it's just childish and petty to not acknowledge that this is as good a way to name anything as anything else. And this is also starting to play out politically in other ways. And Liberal Party MPs are now calling on Labor state governments to either stop the treaty negotiations that they've already got in place or rule out commencing treaty negotiations. And that's what's happened in New South Wales this week. And this is probably going to be a feature of the next federal election campaign. Political games and misinformation played a big role in the Voice of Parliament referendum. And the Coalition will see this as a big political benefit to them and a big political opportunity at the next federal election. And in the recent referendum, it was almost as though Anthony Albanese was oblivious to what the Liberal and National Parties were getting up to. And when he did see it, he ignored it and then just persevered. And one issue is that a referendum and an election are two different types of political events. The obvious difference is that a change of government isn't an option at a referendum. But the coalition probably showed too much of its hand at this referendum. So the government will now be able to see what they'll get up to. And the other issue is that Peter Dutton wasn't really on the campaign trail during the referendum. But whatever the case is, the government probably has been warned about what to expect at the next federal election from the coalition. And and I think it just does need to be prepared. Yeah, I hope the government has learned a lot of lessons about how to campaign, about the importance of striking when the iron's hot, grasping the nettle and all of those uh, Robbie Burns phrases. I think it's also important that the government toughens up. I think it needs to remain principled if it can. And I know that there's that the government has lost some support, particularly amongst the progressive left. Whether they can win it back for some of the things that it's done, I'm, I'm not sure. Whether it's just a, the honeymoon is over and people are seeing the imperfections that are found in all governments in another way, I'm not sure yet. And that doesn't mean to say that the criticisms aren't valid, by the way. I'm just pointing out that people are noticing things to criticise in a way that they probably weren't six months ago. And hello to all our Labour members who listen. We do it out of love. There are lessons to learn. And there's a bit of a trend for progressive radical governments to um, go slowly. And there was a part of me thinking it's trying to learn the lessons of the Whitlam government, who had a huge reform agenda and then lost badly in 75. But Barack Obama too admitted in his memoirs that he did things too slowly and for reasons, some domestic, some internal, some external, wasn't as reformist as perhaps he could have been in in retrospect. So I I don't know whether it's a global thing, whether it's just the natural caution of finally getting into office, not wanting to to lose it straight away, not frightening the electorate, whether there's something else going on or if it's a, a mixture of everything. Hopefully they've learnt to be much more agile, to think more clearly about what might happen, to expect the worst from the other side, hope for the best and be ready for anything. And you know that the papers are going to go in against you hard. You know that you're going to get criticised from all sides. You know that it's not going to be easy, but go for it. Most of Whitlam's reforms remained in office after he left, and he left a large and substantial legacy, which can't be said for some of his successors 40 and 50 years down the track. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music. Or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now support New Politics through Substack and Patreon.
it's 2023. I think it's pretty reasonable to expect, very reasonable to expect, that women can be depicted without using sexualised imagery. And that's really a matter for people who are responsible for that um, being published today to answer that. I think it's all women deserve to be able to open the paper, look at images uh, that, are, that are there for public consumption and not see sexualised imagery being used to represent them. I think particularly for, for younger women that they see this for what it is and that they continue to pursue whatever career or goal or aspiration. We've got 40,000 kids sitting VCE exams today. Let's hope that they can march out of those exams with the determination to see that they can be equal in our society regardless of some of this that we're seeing today. And there is a new Premier in Victoria, but that hasn't stopped the vicious attacks on Jacinta Allen from the media. And the most recent attack was from the News Corporation cartoonist, Mark Knight, publishing a cartoon of Jacinta Allen walking nude on a catwalk. And Mark Knight is a 61-year-old man, but he's got the mind of a prepubescent boy. And this is the mindset of the Herald Sun and of News Corporation. And women from centre-left politics are usually humiliated by News Corporation. They're sexualised, they're dehumanised. Mark Knight also drew sexualised cartoons of Meg Lees during the GST negotiations in 1999. He's also published racist cartoons of Serena Williams in the past, but this is what News Corporation is. This is what the Herald Sun is. It's clickbait. It's the business of outrage. And then this was picked up by other media outlets. 3AW picked it up as a hot topic for the day. The ABC also defended Mark Knight for some strange reason. And it seems that the mainstream media in Melbourne, it's collected all the hatred that it had for Daniel Andrews and now transferred it over to Jacinta Allen. It's... Disgraceful. Attack someone on their ideas, absolutely. Attack them on what they say, for sure. Attack them how they look, no. Attack them because they're a woman, welcome to 1950, and it wasn't good then either. And in fact, parliaments in the 1950s treated women like Enid Lyons and Dorothy Tangney a lot better than they treated people like Julia Gillard and Jacinta Allen um, and Jacinda Ardern if we're going to bring in New Zealand. And I'd even include Gladys Berejiklian in, in that, in that the way they defended her was not as, oh, she did the right thing, but oh, poor, silly little girl uh, led astray by a bad man, which was hideously sexist. This is not at all to defend what Gladys Berejiklian did, but we can criticise what she did. And you can even defend what she did if there's a defence of it without relying on sexist tropes. Amanda Vanstone used to get hammered for her clothes all the time. Again, it's not how she she dresses, it's how well she did the work. And again, I'm no fan of Amanda Vanstone's policies, but I think criticising her ideas and policies was a much better way of holding her to account. The assumptions that we make, and they hate smart centre-left women more, the teals, I think all of the teals have complained about their treatment in the house, or at least most of them have, and that's disgraceful too. If you can't argue their ideas, then you clearly don't have much to say about them and you don't understand them. I've said before I don't agree with everything the teals agree with. Their views on unions, for example, I probably have a totally different idea. Their views on tax, I probably have a totally different idea. But I'm not going to imply that these women shouldn't be in parliament for that. And I'm not going to imply that they don't understand what they're talking about. More than happy. And we've had teals on the program before. I'm more than happy to discuss all of this with them. But as shapers of public policies, not as men and women, if that makes sense. And I think it really is typical of the Herald Sun and of News Corporation to publish this sort of material. And I just wonder what sort of thinking goes on in the newsroom of the Herald Sun that approves this material and thinks that it would be a good thing to publish. And I'm pretty sure that if anyone at the Herald Sun puts up their hand and says, oh, I don't think that's really appropriate, they'll probably get the sack before they put their hand down. But a few weeks ago, David, you suggested that if the Herald Sun is just going to transfer the hate and the bile that they had for Daniel Andrews and just move it over to Jacinda Allen, well, they might need some psychiatric help. And and I think we might need to call in that psychiatrist soon, and there's probably quite a few good ones in Melbourne. But every cartoon of Jacinta Allen drawn by Mark Knight goes for that stereotype of the dumb blonde. 
you know, she looks confused. She looks befuddled. She doesn't know what she's doing. And now she's nude. And it's just a bloke's world over at the Herald Sun. And this continues on from other conservative male cartoonists. There were all those lewd pornographic cartoons of Julia Gillard by Larry Pickering. Bill Leake had that phase of drawing sexualized cartoons of women leaders as well. It's like all of their psychosexual problems that these guys have got are being played out in public. And it shows us what's in the mind of Mark Knight, that cartoonist. It also shows us what's in the mind of Rupert Murdoch. It shows us what's in the mind of Lachlan Murdoch as well. Filthy men who thrive on misogyny. And this is their business model of outrage, commodifying women and people who are different, making fun of them, humiliating them, and... This is their reaction to political correctness gone mad and appealing to the people who think like this. And I don't know what sort of help they need, but they need some sort of therapy because this is all clearly unacceptable. And it's the palpable rage too. Cartoonists, of course, should be allowed to poke fun at power. That's the whole point. And generally, the cartoonists do a decent job of it. There's, we, we have some brilliant cartoonists in Australia too. But when they tap into this entitled rage, or maybe I should call it the lack of entitlement rage, it becomes ugly. It doesn't become very funny. And again, humour is subjective, but there is some humour that's punching down is not funny. It never really has been. If you've got to punch down on someone, when you're punching down on uh, Jacinta Allen as a woman, you're not really attacking her as Premier. It's one thing to attack her as Premier and say, I'll look at this and, and make comments and make political comments on what you disagree with or what you agree with. That's perfectly fine and, and okay. And then some very poignant and insightful things are done occasionally. John Shakespeare, uh, Kathy Wilcox does some really great cartoons from time to time. One of the things with cartoons is uh, exaggerating various facial features as part of the caricature. You've got to be really careful there too. And there's one thing about getting close to the line, getting on the line, crossing the line, and then sort of just just jumping over the line, doing a few somersaults, setting off some fireworks and keeping running in the same direction or as far away from the line as you can. And humour changes. And so if you started as a 20-year-old cartoonist and 40 years later you're still at it, but you're still telling the same jokes as you were when you were 20, you've probably been left behind. That boy needs therapy. Purely psychosomatic. That boy needs therapy. Lie down on the couch. Well, what does that mean? You're a nut. You're crazy in the coconut. What does that mean? That boy needs therapy. I'm gonna kill you. That boy needs therapy. Let's have a The war in Palestine is getting worse, and it's hard to see what the next steps are in this conflict. But based on previous wars against Palestine, there'll be harsh retaliation by Israel, and there'll be smaller retaliations from Hamas. Israel will then keep bombing and killing more civilians. There'll be some harsh words from the United Nations. The United States will send their thoughts and prayers, and most Western governments will urge restraint and keep saying that Israel does have a right to defend itself. And then the cycle will just keep going on and on and on. On and on. And this is a disaster for the Palestinian people, but it's also a disaster for the Israeli people as well. Israel is a rogue state and it's behaving like one. And in the long term, I think that Israel is going to lose out. All of its actions are illegal. All of their encroachments in the West Bank are illegal. And it doesn't matter what the rest of the world says. It's just going to keep going on with all of this illegal activity. And people keep saying that Israel does have the right to defend itself, but this has gone on far beyond the defense of Israel. And this is everything terrible that we've seen through human history, indiscriminate bombing, targeting of hospitals, collective punishment, ethnic cleansing, and the world is just standing by and letting it all happen. So it seems that only Israel has got the right to defend itself, but who's going to speak up on behalf of the Palestinian people? And again, my criticism here is of a particular government retaliating against an attack against what seems to be a large proportion of the wrong people. The deaths of civilians is appalling. The bombing of hospitals, an Anglican hospital was one of them, is appalling. The attack that led to this 
was appalling. Hamas needs criticism as much as the Netanyahu government. It's not an easy situation. It's not a simple idea. There's complexities, there's parallels we have to be careful drawing. But the ultimate point is that two wrongs don't make a right. And the civilians in Palestine who are cut off from electricity, from water, from food, and the people in Israel who are appalled at this, and there's a quite sizable group of people who are appalled at this and don't want it to happen. I hope they can work together to sort it out so that things can improve. It looks like that there are troops going over from the US, from Australia and from other countries. This is not good. I don't know that it will do much good. And any criticisms that I have is not about whether a particular citizenry is in the wrong. It's about the political organisations drawing this stuff. And I think that the Israel government is out of control and has been pretty much out of control since Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated in 1995. And the government and its behaviour behaves like a group of outlaws. And it's now saying that it's going to teach the UN a lesson. And the last time I heard anyone talking like that was Vladimir Putin. And who in the Western world talks like that? Who in the Western world would speak like that? You know, teach the UN a lesson. And that was in response to a speech made by the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres. The situation in the Middle East is growing more dire by the hour. The war in Gaza is raging and risks spiraling throughout the region. I'm deeply concerned about the clear violations of international humanitarian law that we are witnessing in Gaza. Let me be clear, no party to an armed conflict is above international humanitarian law. It is important to also recognize the attacks by Hamas did not happen in a vacuum. The Palestinian people have been subjected to 56 years of suffocating occupation. They have seen their land steadily devoured by settlements and plagued by violence, their economy stifled, their people displaced, and their homes demolished. Their hopes for a political solution to their plight have been vanishing. But the grievances of the Palestinian people cannot justify the appalling attacks by Hamas, and those appalling attacks cannot justify the collective punishment of the Palestinian people. To ease epic suffering, make the delivery of aid easier and safer, and facilitate the release of hostages, I reiterate my appeal for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. That was quite a measured speech where he's criticising the Israeli army as well as Hamas and said that nothing can justify the deliberate killing, injuring and kidnapping of innocent civilians. And there shouldn't be anything controversial in all of this, but the Israel military wants to keep bombing and killing innocent Palestinians, over 5,000 so far. And when it's finished there, it wants to teach the UN a lesson. And before people get out their keyboards, just to be clear, just to reiterate what you said before, David, we are critical of the Israel government and the Israel military and all of those hardliners that are governed by the Bible. And there's a lot of Jewish people in Israel and all around the world who are horrified by the actions of the Israel government. And in the same way that Hamas does not represent all Palestinian people, the Israel government does not represent all Israeli people. But the actions of the Israel military and the government do have to stop because it's jeopardising the security of the entire Middle East region, not just of Israel. It's a highly complex situation. All we can do is hope that things settle down, that the Israeli government starts to see the opprobrium that's getting from the world. And even people like Joe Biden have been critical, although he walked some of those statements back. So it, it's it's probably going to get worse before it gets better, but we hope that it, that everyone comes out with as few innocent victims as possible. And there's also a local dimension to all of this as well. And, and the war might be centred around Gaza, but that doesn't mean that the politics of this won't be played out in Australia. Peter Dutton suggested that the Prime Minister should travel to Israel while he's on his way to meet with President Biden in the United States. And this, of course, became big news in the media because apparently in Australia, an opposition leader of the Liberal Party is a far more important figure than the Prime Minister of the government. And we need to hear every single word that he says. And it was never explained what the Prime Minister was 
going to do in Israel, but he just had to go, according to Peter Dutton. And if he's so keen about this, well, maybe he should go. He's the policeman, so maybe he should go to Israel and resolve the conflict. And then he started complaining about Airbus elbow. So you can just never win with Peter Dutton. And the government minister, Ed Husich, he spoke out on behalf of Palestine and Palestinian people. And here's what he had to say. Palestinians are being collectively punished here for Hamas's barbarism. I really do feel that uh, the uh, there is an obligation on governments, particularly the Israeli government, to, as we have said, follow the rules of international law. Governments are different to terrorist organisations. Governments, there is a higher expectation that there will be a protection of innocent lives. And Senator Fatima Payman from WA, she also made a speech in the Senate supporting Palestine as well. The killing of innocent civilians in Israel should be condemned, and we condemn it. The killing of innocent civilians in Palestine should also be condemned, and we must condemn it. The international community loudly and proudly condemned Russia's occupation of Ukraine when it started attacking Ukraine in 2014. Yet today, the world watches as the state of Israel deprives the entire population, men, women and children, of the basic necessities of life, food, water, electricity, gas and medicines. We must condemn it. Israeli missiles strike residential dwellings, civilians, multi-storey apartments, health facilities, as well as places of worship, indiscriminately killing men, women and children. We must condemn it. Human Rights Watch confirms that Israel is using white phosphorus in Gaza, violates the international humanitarian law pro prohibition. We must condemn it. The price tag of Israel's right to defend itself cannot be the destruction of Palestine. Israel's right to defend its civilians cannot equate to the annihilation of Palestinian, Palestinian civilians. I hereby call for an immediate ceasefire to come into effect alongside many world leaders and experts. Food, water, medicine and humanitarian aid needs to be allowed to get through and reach the victims. Mediation and talks need to start, as obviously violence has not solved anything for the past 75 years, and just and a just and long-lasting solution needs to be sought out. And then Susan Lay came out and she claimed that it showed that the Labor Party was divided over Israel. And then these supposed divisions were then amplified by the media, of course. And Israel-Palestine... As you refer to, David, it's a very, very complex issue. And I guess it would be made a lot easier if Israel stopped settling in the West Bank and stopped treating Gaza like an open-air prison. But it can never be debated on a serious level to anyone's satisfaction if all we get are these dilettante and politicised perspectives from the Liberal Party that just make matters worse. Like you, I was puzzled as to why sending the Prime Minister to Israel would do any good. If it was happening in Indonesia, say, and of course we hope it doesn't, and I, there's no suggestion that it would, but I'm just picking a, an important neighbour near us. It might be appropriate for the Australian Prime Minister to go to start to lead diplomatic solutions. But for an Australian Prime Minister to go to the Middle East, is the Israeli government going to say, you know, he's right, let's stop doing this? Or is Palestine going to say, you know, yeah, let's move. We've, we've had a good go here. He was exactly right. Let's go elsewhere. It just made no sense. And, and of course, yeah, had he gone, Airbus Albo would come out again as if the Prime Minister never makes overseas trips. I would prefer that we weren't sending troops. But again, the deals that have been made and the importance of this type of stuff in international relations probably means that you know, wishes and even what is right don't come up as high a priority as they should. This is New Politics, one of the top 10 Australian politics and news commentary audio programs. You can listen to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Amazon Music, and you can find us at newpolitics.com.au, and you can contribute and support New Politics on Substack and Patreon.
There have been a new batch of opinion polls and for the first time since January 2021, the Liberal National Coalition is ahead in an opinion poll and this is in the Morgan poll which shows that the LNP is polling 50.5% in the two-party preferred vote which means that the Labor Party is polling 49.5% and this poll might actually be an outlier because every other poll over the past three or four months has been hovering around 54% for the Labor Party. So we'll just have to wait and see if there is a pattern that's forming here. And we've consistently suggested that Peter Dutton is unelectable and he'll never become Prime Minister. But we've also consistently suggested that you should never underestimate an opposition leader. And we said the same about Tony Abbott and he was a terrible Prime Minister, but he did end up becoming the Prime Minister. And We have almost reached the midway point of this electoral cycle and first term governments do lose some political skin during these times but it's also coming up towards the end of the year so the government will probably let this year meander until it's all over, refresh itself and then get prepared for a big year in 2024. And John Howard was a master of this. He'd have fairly poor polling all the way through till it got near the election, then his popularity would rise again. Again, this could be an outlier. We need to see the other polls before we can know be for sure. I think all of them occasionally have outlying polls. There's probably been a little bump to the coalition since the referendum. I'm not sure that it would be a four-point bump, but... Again, I I rarely doubt the honesty of the polls. I sometimes doubt the accuracy of them. And all polling companies occasionally throw out an outlier. And I think the government has to regroup after a bit of a loss. I think the Middle East position is probably taking up a bit of time that they could be doing other things with. And I think working out what to do after lost a referendum that you should have won and the cost of living crisis and all of that means that I think the government will just continue with, I think you're right, the government will continue with business as usual and, and go back to bigger announcements next year. And this year isn't over yet. It is the end of October. It's just a little bit more of the year to go, but it feels that the political year is running out of steam already and it feels that the federal government is running low on energy. And this isn't unusual for first-term governments. The first term of the Howard government had a similar situation midway through 1997 and then John Howard pulled out the Never Ever GST out of his bag and that became his big reform agenda and the past few months have been consumed with the voice of parliament and perhaps the recent opinion polls are reflective of this and the government has lost some political skin over the voice of parliament and it was a loss on an issue that it did campaign on and there are going to be the political effects of this loss but It is time to get over the loss of this as a government and then move on to other matters. And we pointed this out a few weeks ago. Where's Jim Chalmers? Where's Jason Clare? Penny Wong? Now, she has been active with the issues that have been happening in Gaza, but where is everyone else? And it's easy for prime ministers to become bogged down, but that's why you have caucus. That's why you have a team of ministers to support the prime minister and to support the government. And it's probably time to revisit what happened during the 2022 election campaign when Anthony Albanese acquired the COVID virus and was out of action for a week and other Labor MPs stepped in to fill the breach. And the government is never just the Prime Minister. Scott Morrison tried to make the government all about him and in more ways than one when he appointed himself to all of those secret ministries and it didn't work for Kevin Rudd either. Government is the sum of all of its parts and I think it's essential for other key members of the government to step up and Jim Chalmers and Claire O'Neill have been more prominent over the past week and we can see what the flavour of the next election campaign is going to be like, and it's not due until May 2025, but the campaign is going to be based on misinformation, it's going to be based on Indigenous issues, and not in a good way, and the cultural wars will continue, and I have a feeling that it's going to be quite brutal, and you just need to have your best team forward and to be prepared for whatever is going to be thrown at them. Exactly. Is got a decent team. I know some people were disappointed in Penny Wong's response to Israel, but again, as foreign minister, which is not to defend her remarks, but as foreign minister, you have to speak in a totally different way that you would as an opposition leader, and that may have had something to do with it. The government needs to find its energy and its motivation and its momentum again, and it needs to get these very good people out there and get talking and have intelligent conversations. They have 
have to share it amongst themselves, which is sort of why you have a prime minister. But I think to get those four or five, probably six or seven really first-class ministers out there to remind people that it is a government of some competence, not a perfect government, and also to show people that they realise it's not just good enough to be not the other side, that there's real and tangible and beneficial things happening. And I think that's where the vacuum gets filled with opposition talking point, and then people start believing it. And even if things are good, if people believe things are bad, that will have an effect. I don't know how many times a government has lost and then the paper, usually the one that has been running them down, has said, oh, but the economy was really good. Jobs were up. Inflation was down. Why would people vote against this? You know, well, why didn't you say that three weeks ago? But that's the thing. The government needs to find its momentum. It needs to find its public passion. I'm not doubting the passion of a lot of its ministers. There's some dead wood it could probably clear out, although I think finding the passion first and letting the better performers start to perform or at least letting us see them performing, I think is what they've got to start doing. Again, I think they won't do much between now and Christmas, except continue the day-to-day work of running a, a fairly, not completely, but fairly competent government but they better start finding their magic again otherwise they'll be placed into a minority position and then they'll be able to get nothing done that's it for this episode of new politics thanks for listening in and if you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au we don't beg plead beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.